foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash move your DNA with Katie Bowman. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. These might just be the dog days of summer, friends. Welcome to them, and welcome to the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I am Katie Bowman. I'm a biomechanist, the author of Move Your DNA, and a bunch of other books about movement, including a very hefty book called Alignment Matters. It's a collection of the first five years of my old blog, Katie says, and it's a book many of you over the years have requested that I make an audiobook of. Well, guess what? I'm not going to. But if you've been listening to the podcast this summer, you know that I have been reading three essays from Alignment Matters on each episode and talking a little bit about the connections I see among them and also updating the essays with side notes when I feel like it. And while I'm rarely in favor of anyone outsourcing their own work to someone else, I am totally willing to read this to you so that you can get your summer on in whatever way you like to while you listen. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? Another summer episode, another three essays from Alignment Matters for your listening pleasure. And it's kind of fun reading through this book to figure out what I want to read to you. I have not sat down and read this book all the way through in many, many years, but I know that there are a few pieces that I really enjoyed writing, and there are definitely pieces that are more popular than others. So this first one, Your Position in Life, is a pretty widely shared essay. So I'm going to read it to you and I can talk about it after. June 7th, 2010. A good question in my Ask Katie today. Standing workstations are clearly a good idea and I have fashioned one for myself, but what is too much standing? 
We all know that people whose jobs require constant standings like restaurant servers and factory workers are often plagued with varicose veins. Is there a balance to be struck here? This is a great question. So we've got a situation where sitting constantly is creating disease and standing constantly is creating disease. So do you see the theme? Although the research and media are going to probably miss the boat on this one, the problem isn't sitting or the standing for that matter, but the constant and continuous use of a single position. Even this question smacks of someone from a North American and European perspective, as if sitting is bad and standing is bad, and the only option left must be lying down, as if there are only three choices for how you position your body, as if there aren't about a thousand different ways you could position your body. Believe it or not, the positions you are able to get your body in were learned via observation. Our culture's use of chairs and toilets, our beliefs in what our posture means to others. Think of women who cross their legs and adjust their heads to look demure, or men who jump their chests and flex their elbows to communicate authority. And even our clothing, rigid shoes, narrow skirts, etc., have all resulted in self-induced joint rigidity. All the movements you have never done are movements that would have toned muscle or kept connective tissue moist and supple and kept blood oxygen flowing evenly to all areas of the body. Instead, we have huge chunks of unused muscles, bones scraping together at the joints and increasing friction, and we are constantly medicating to make living possible in our physical agony. This all sounds pretty depressing, I know, but the totally awesome, super cool, and exciting thing is, it can be different whenever you're ready. Another awesome thing is, while I may seem like the only person saying these strange things, there are actually other people out there who have researched this for the last 100 years. The big difference between them and now is, one, there wasn't the internet back then, which must have made it very difficult to share insights collectively, and two, there is now a wide breadth of subjects a good education covers. Good education is in quotes, just as an aside note. Most of the people observing the very real phenomenon of cultural postural habits and habitual uses of the body, which are physical anthropologists, and the people in charge of health education and prescription, which can be medicine, are in two completely different sciences. They don't even talk to each other, even at parties. But I am hopeful my education in the biomechanics of human movement and disease, coupled with my awesome typing skills in Al Gore's internet, is going to help. How is this information ever going to get to you? The people. One blog post at a time, I guess. One extremely cool journal article from 1955, World Distribution of Certain Postural Habits, reported the findings of physical anthropology professor Gordon W. Hughes. It is an amazing read, and if you'd like to have more than my take on it, you can get it here, and I'll just link that in the show notes. As many anthropologists know, the way we move is mostly a result of our cultural inheritances and has very little to do with genetics. Clothing, terrain, temperature, gender, class, and fear are only a few of the many factors that affect how we adjust our joints when sitting and standing. Hughes reported on about 100 resting postures of the world, and I have posted an image so that you can see perhaps why our Western joint health and metabolism, which is dependent on muscle length, and I'd modify it really to say muscle range and the use of it, is the poorest in the world. So we need to think bigger. There is more than just sitting and standing. Create 10 different options of each. If you have a standing workstation, stand a few different ways every hour. When you sit, sit a few different ways every hour. Open your mind and open your joints. When you get home, stay out of your chairs and try a lot of these worldly options. And note, if you don't have a spear, a broom may work because one of the images in the picture has a spear. 
Circle the ones you can't maintain for longer than five minutes and make a note to practice that posture at the beginning and the end of an exercise session. And parents don't insist that kids sit in the same fashion as us stiffer folks. Allow them to explore other options and join them. They can teach you something about natural movement. Also, if you do spend a yoga or a stretching class cycling through 10 or so of these postures, know that while this cycle is a great thing, getting back into your usual sitting position the other 6 to 10 hours of the day reduces your health just the same. Adjust the way you sit as often as possible for real deep cellular change. Hughes concludes his research. Physiologists, anatomists, and orthopedists, to say nothing of specialists in physical education, have dealt exhaustively with a few ideal postures, principally the fairly rigid attention stance beloved of the drill master, the students, and the stenographers' habits of sitting at desks. The English postural vocabulary is mediocre, a fact which in itself inhibits our thinking about posture. Quite the opposite is true of the languages of India, where the yoga system has developed an elaborate postural terminology and rationale, perhaps the world's richest. In conclusion, I should like to stress the deficiencies in our scientific concern with postural behavior, many which arise simply from the all-too-common neglect by non-anthropologists of cross-cultural data. Gordon Hughes? I concur. So, what are my thoughts on that? My thoughts are written out in many different (laughs) books. So I wrote a whole book, Don't Just Sit There, because I think that our mindset, our sedentarism keeps us chronically looking for an ideal posture. And a lot of the conflict that is kind of demonstrated within people who have kind of described a a different ideal posture comes about evaluating things over different time scales or maybe just looking at different things. And in the end, this is also kind of a movement matters take on it, which is if you set the question up to be what is the most ideal static posture, you will just spend the rest of your life or hundreds of years eliminating one static posture after another. And so what I like about biological plausibility is just the understanding that movement has already been established as a very necessary thing. So we're kind of at a, a cultural impasse where sedentarism is required for the mechanics of this particular culture. And so if this particular culture's question is, how can I be still in the most healthy fashion? It kind of leads you to think that there's no, like that cultural shifts aren't possible, where I think I'd like to expand the question more to be like, how can we adjust the culture for the for the well-being of everyone in it? Is there a way that many elements of the culture can survive as well as the people within it? Because the people ultimately make up the culture. And so like if, if the culture is interested in long-term duration, it has to, just like a corporation, if a If a large company wants to be well, the people who work there need to also be well. Either that or people are seen more as, I would say, a commodity. And so that they can always bring more people in to drive the culture. So it is nice to have many different cultural options. And being counterculture 
counterculture is relative. And so I would say that the theme of the pieces that I picked is really relativity. So I sit on the floor. That's counter to some cultures. It is not counter to all cultures. And it is actually not counter to most cultures or to most human behavior. I think it's important to remember that what's happening right now in this podcast listening smartphone culture, that's the outlier. The furniture is the outlier, not my activity of not using it. Relativity. All right. And speaking of relativity, essay two, Varus and Valgus, November 9th, 2011. One of my favorite college courses was medical Latin. I loved it because speaking Latin made me think of gods and goddesses and togas and baklava and riding a moped after swimming in the Mediterranean, which now that I think of it are all Greek things, actually. It turns out I love all Greek things, and I can't wait until I move to my tiny Greek island slash olive tree farm slash alignment center. You're all invited. Most anatomy or physiology students take medical Latin at some point in their college career, and we take it because we have to memorize hundreds of names of bones and muscles and tissues and functions, and most names are in Latin. So knowing even a little bit of Latin helps because then you don't have to memorize everything. You want to know an interesting story? A teaching doctor became perplexed during orthopedic rounds, holding up an x-ray of a bow-legged patient and asking medical students for the diagnosis. He was disappointed to see a third of the students got the answer right. One third got the answer wrong, and the remaining one third just shook their heads. They didn't know. They were confused. So you might have heard of these terms, knock-kneed, and bow-legged, but if you were way smarter and better educated, then you would use these terms varus and valgus, or valgus and varus, which is my point today. The doctor scolded his students, and I just made that part up, told them the correct answer, and then drove home to look up the Latin to find out what the problem was. And here was the problem. Somewhere down the line, the orthopedic terms had become reversed from the Latin definitions. So valgus is Latin for having the knees angled outward. Varus is Latin for bent or grown inward. Shocked that the definitions were the opposite of his knowledge, he checked the 24 current orthopedic textbooks and found that 23 used the reverse terms and only one made note of the historical versus current text. Quote, This particular pair of terms has caused more confusion than any other pair, partly because the original Latin terms had the opposite meaning to that which is now universally accepted. That's a quote from the doctor guy. And if you are worried that this guy did a lot of hard work for not, don't be, because he wrote a paper on it and got it published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Nice. Now, I'm going to tell you how the terms probably got reversed, and I can do this because I am a huge nerd, and I have my very own copy of the Lexicon of Orthopedic Etymology. I know you're jealous. In the original definition, the terms valgus and varus referred to the position of the joint. So using the Latin definition of valgus, the bent outward knee would look like bow-legged. And the Latin definition of varus would look like knock-kneed. So with valgus, imagine the knees are wider, though they're wider than the pelvis, 
and varus, the knees are closer to each other, so the distance between them is more narrow than the pelvis is wide. Anyhow, at some point, someone translated these terms for a modern orthopedic text, and instead of the definition referring to the joint, they applied it instead to what the lower segment of the leg, which is the shin bone, was doing. So replacing the word knee with lower leg, the new definition of valgus read having the lower leg angled outward, which is the opposite of the original configuration. By accidentally changing one word in the definition, the meaning was reversed, which is crazy, right? And here's a Katie factoid. I love the science of semantics, and I feel that a huge breakdown in health and wellness is that students have not learned anatomy in the most correct way. And I'm going to just pop in here as Katie in 2018 say, like, I really mean, like, to recognize that a knee joint in a translation is different than the shin and that those slight translation changes end up changing the meaning. And I run into this a lot because I write for popular publications and they're often edited towards the more simple like when I try to say you know you want to put your arm or their shoulder here it'll come back from the editor of like well we think that more people would understand it if you put it like this but the way that they've done it makes it technically wrong and there's a lot of pressure to leave it technically wrong for better understanding but when you do that over time what happens is the technically wrong becomes understood by almost everybody and then that creates the pressure to come up with a new definition. So again, I'm interested in cultural phenomenon and how our understanding of movement and our body has been shaped by knowledge, scientific knowledge in this case, because it's an aspect of our culture. So anyway, this, this is again falling under that kind of cultural phenomenon and relativity. Anyway, the paper that he wrote calls for the elimination of the varus and valgus terms altogether as they are used incorrectly. So the doctor's paper also just suggested using the uber-clear terms bow-legged and knock-kneed to keep everyone on the same and correct page. This also makes me feel better as a patient. Say I had one varus and one valgus leg and would need the varus one amputated, which one would they take? Scary, I don't like to think about stuff like that. I like to think about things like Antonio Banderas instead. Just kidding. Maybe. And the paper that I was referencing, I'll link to it in the show notes, is called Occasional Notes, Varus and Valgus. No wonder they are confused by C.S. Houston and L.E. Swishchuck from 1980, the New England Journal of Medicine. If you're into podcasts, it's likely that you love the audio format. If you like listening to Katie read from her book, Alignment Matters, well, you should know that she has three audiobooks and she is willing to read them to you anytime you want. All you need is an Audible account, a device with speakers, and a willing ear. Here's a little clip from the best-selling big idea book, Move Your DNA. I have had the unique experience of being a couch potato, ages 5 to 18, an exercise addict, ages 19 to 30, and an all-day natural mover, ages 31 to 38 and counting. I was extremely bookish as a child. I played and rode my bike like all kids, but if I look at the actual frequency of my movement in each 24-hour period, I spent most of the time sitting and reading. 
I was a swimmer in high school, which required a couple hours of swimming a day for a few months a year. But even then, practices were sandwiched between sitting at my desk or lying on my bed reading. It might come as no surprise to you that my eyeglass lenses are as thick as a wall. During my senior year, I started walking the couple of miles to school, which made me feel so good I found myself driving to places where I could walk after I walked home. I started losing weight. My friends at the ice cream shop where I worked were in their 20s and more prone to gaining weight from the common four scoops per shift habit, oh, to be a teen again. They joined a gym, and I came along. This is where I met the Stairmaster, and the aerobics classes, and the squat rack. This is where I triumphantly ran my first mile by choice. I sucked at running the mile every year before that, and where I fell in love with the exercise high. In college, I was still bookish and loved ice cream, but I found that I could manage my weight by running hard every day. At first, it was two miles, then five, then ten. When I left the physics department to study biomechanics in the kinesiology department, working out for credit was required. One semester, I took a running class, an aerobics class, and kinesiology 20, a thrice-weekly exercise class required of all kinesiology students for the purpose of passing the required fitness testing. In one semester, I went from running a 10-minute mile to running a 6.45 mile. Holy crap, right? While in college, I decided that it would be best if I could get paid to exercise. This would make sure that I could pay for college and stay in shape all at the same time. I took my group exercise instructor certification and added 10 classes a week to my already scheduled workouts. I ran, swam, strength trained, and cross trained with free weights and body resistance. I taught stretching, core strengthening, kickboxing. You name it, I taught it. I did this for almost 10 years and was in fantastic shape. Except my body hurt all of the time. I had horrible acne on my jawline. And the worst thing was, I started to panic if I couldn't get my exercise session in. And it is not just Katie's trademark humor, her compassion, and straightforward approach to movement science that you'll get with each audiobook. You'll also get... Mouse hands to monkey arms. (laughs) That's money. I think every time I read the word of an animal, I should make it sound... This is where the exchange between the body and blood occurs. Not occurs. Dang it! It's like a beer commercial, kind of. (laughs) Body and blood occurs. All right. Rib lifting when standing is a showa showa shortna. That's right. Each of Katie's audiobooks includes several glorious minutes of her bloopers. And you can find the Move Your DNA audiobook on Audible. And this audiobook comes with a downloadable exercise PDF as well as a mileage count. Every chapter, Katie will tell you how many miles each section is worth if you listen while you move. And why wouldn't you listen on the move? Now hear this. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their service. You can download any audiobook of your choosing by going to audibletrial.com slash moveyourdna with Katie Bowman. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com 
slash move your DNA with Katie Bowman. That's audibletrial.com slash move your DNA with Katie Bowman for your free audiobook. Okay, now back to your regularly scheduled programming with Katie Bowman. Okay, final essay, Hidden Doubts. I wrote this a long time ago. It feels like a long time ago. I guess it's been seven years almost. 2011. I haven't read this yet, so I'm going to read it with you for the first time, and I, so all my comments will be completely organic. This morning, there was a great question on our Facebook page. I'm active in a pregnancy group here on Facebook, and it's so sad to hear all these women having problems with pelvic pain, leaking urine, and even prolapse. They think it's normal or just something they have to live with, and I keep posting about your exercises, but it can't seem to get through to them. Does the idea of healing yourself with exercise and alignment perhaps sounds too good to be true. In 1975, two researchers, Becker and Mainman, developed something called the Health Belief Model, HBM. They suggested that the likelihood of someone adopting a behavior that would prevent or correct some disease or physical issue depended on two things. And don't worry, I'll tell you what those two things are. And in case you are wondering that I am some sort of information freakazoid, let me introduce you to a little garage sale find called Advances in Exercise Adherence by Rod K. Dishman. This little textbook cost me a whopping three bucks, and you never know what treasures are lying around other people's houses, which makes me sound a bit like a klepto. No judgment on my klepto readers. I like shiny things, too. So applying the HBM to your question, a woman would need two things to be motivated enough to follow your advice on alignment in the pelvic floor. She would need, one, to believe that she had a personal vulnerability to PFD or pelvic floor disorder or SI joint or hip pain. And two, believe that the consequences of her condition would be severe. The first isn't typically an issue because chances are if they're reading your post or mine, they already have an issue. So there's not a lot of wondering if they're going to have a pelvic floor disorder someday. Someday is today. The severity of the issue is more challenging. And I don't think that women understand that a little PFD now can mean a whole lot of PFD later. I will write until I'm blue in the um, fingers that if you have a little pelvic floor issue now, perhaps a little sneeze pee, then in the not-so-distant future, your organs will be falling out. That's terrible. (laughs) This is me in 2018. I would never write that sentence now. It just goes on and on. Okay, I'm going to read it as I wrote it. If you have a little (laughs) bit... (laughs) Sometimes I don't like myself very much. If you have a little pelvic floor issue now, perhaps a little sneeze pee, then in the not-so-distant future, your organs will be falling out, your hips will need replacing, your knees will need replacing, your SI joint will wobble around and push on your sciatic nerves, and your toes will go numb, your lumbar spine will degenerate, your organs will need to be removed, your vaginal delivery will likely turn into a cesarean. Oh, look at, okay, this is what I say right after that. When I read the above paragraph, I feel like a bad person because it sounds mean or something. And I don't say it because I'm trying to make money, and I don't say it because I'm trying to make you any more tense than you already are. I'm saying it because somebody has to. Somebody has to start saying that the way you are using your body is part of what is making you sick, and it will continue to make you sick in the future. And it is your job, not mine, to hear it and take action. Ugh, Katie, Katie, Katie. So I write a lot softer now, and I'm thinking about what I just wrote And I don't feel that differently about the sentiment of which I'm writing, which is I believe that culturally we are 
very resistant to the idea that there is a way of using the body versus like the body is just kind of doing naturally what it is inclined to do. And also that we have much more control over it. I guess I'm trying to think, I'm trying to edit myself in my mind, like control meaning we could be picking much different things, but they would be like sometimes totally radically different. And as we have these phenomena of these degenerations in our body that require major medical action, and as we see things like replacements increase in frequency and start going into younger generations, it's perplexing that we're not asking these questions more vigorously. So again, I am also interested in why, why that is. And I feel like it does have something to do with it feels icky. It feels icky to point it out. It feels mean to point it out, even when it's like, I feel like it's the opposite of meanness. Like, it, I find it helpful to identify something that I could choose, like to, to become aware of the choices that I am making. And I've gone through that process in both physical and then also in like the non-physical, like the choice of thinking about something differently and that how you choose to think about things, the words that you choose to say, changing outcomes. And that's also why I would heavily edit this section because I think that the way that I've written it here would appeal to some people and would also completely turn off other people. It would not be the key for them to hear (laughs) this message. So I would, the sentiment is the same, but the writing, I don't know. I don't know how the writing might have made this kind of fall on dead ears. Anyway, I've just decided that the theme of 2012 is personal responsibility. And I can say in 2018, I'm still on that kick. Oh, also upper body strength. Yeah, and also same for 2018, which reminds me that I need to go hang from my indoor monkey bars for three minutes before I spend any more time writing this post. Okay, I'm back and I'm buff and I'm definitely in that order. Now that I've explained the health belief model, I need to add some more info because you see the HBM is not really that complete. It turns out that many people know that they need to get exercise. They believe that they will die if they don't do it, yet they still don't do it. And we haven't had to go to the extreme of dying from something. Most of you, dear readers, have some ailment for which I've given you an exercise prescription or information to follow and you still don't really comply with regularity that matches your desire to no longer have issue X. Well, not you who is shaking your head right now and saying, not me, I follow your advice to a T. I'm not talking about you. You used to sit in the front row of the class, didn't you? So why is it that we can't seem to manage to execute the behaviors that we desire to? Enter the self-efficacy theory. This 1977 theory... I was born just before this came out, states that, quote, all behavioral changes are meditated by a cognitive mechanism of perceived efficacy, which is a lot of fancy words to say that you have to believe that you can perform the recommended behavior. And I like the word believe because as a science type, you know, all boring and math and lists and bad at art and no passion and left brain and black and white and I don't see in color and I can't really taste food and my life is very straight and adventureless. I don't really know what it means, yet I'll bet that you, like me, knows what it feels like to be 100% on board with what you believe. 
So here are some indicators that might help you identify a lower level of self-efficacy. One, I'm afraid that I'm not doing it right. Two, if I can't do it completely, then I don't feel good doing it at all. Three, I've tried the healthy thing before and I couldn't do it. Four, my attempts at health have failed in the past. Five, I'm not that coordinated. Six, but I've always had this fill in the blank. Sound familiar? Your belief system, especially in your ability to physically do something, is learned from your personal experiences as well as the good and bad experiences of those you model, so parents, peer group, etc. The self-efficacy theory has been researched and is believed to be the most successful in explaining habitual exercise behavior, which is a lot of fancy words to say that even if your organs are falling out and your hips hurt so badly that you can no longer walk, and even if you thought that them falling out would kill you, and good news, it won't, you still wouldn't spend a couple hours a day doing exercises and making a standing workstation and giving up heeled shoes and valuing your health enough to really invest in it because you don't believe that you can change. And therein lies the problem. It doesn't matter how many solutions you post, reader who posed the question that launched me on this post, or how many blog posts I write and emails I answer. The people with, in this case, pelvic pain or leaky urine or pelvic organ prolapse have to repair themselves. They have to value the repair more than you do. And that's tough because you're excited and following my blog and posting about whole body alignment because you've chosen to help others. And they're reading your Facebook post as something to fill extra time and aren't necessarily looking for answers, just interaction, which are two fundamentally different things. Interaction is often mistaken for taking action. Then, original poster, there could be the other issue too, that they totally believe in themselves and just don't believe what you are posting. The prevailing notion that our body injuries are a result of a single incident and not the slow accumulation of micro damage makes it very difficult to even begin to understand our ailments. In other words, if you are asked by a health practitioner to explain how your back went out, you are much more likely to say, I was moving a 40-pound bag of cement up 27 flights of stairs, than you are to say, I've sat in a chair for 10 days for, oh, I don't know, 17 years, and I've been under a lot of emotional stress, too, and then I used my body for a huge athletic feat with no training program whatsoever. In other words, we have an inexcusable lack of knowledge regarding our own function and the inability to see that what we've been doing is what has led directly to the ailments we have now. So maybe these women think that you are spending your valuable and precious time posting nonsense. And although I believe, with the other half of my brain that's more interesting and has a personality and passion and loves poetry and sewing and rainbows and fairies and stuff, that if you have come here to read, or they have come to your site to read, that the material is resonating with them on a cellular level. The fact that they don't trust the info has more to do with trusting their own ability to do something with it or their efficacy. And P.S. I can't post the problem without posting a solution, can I? So if you feel that you might have an issue with self-efficacy, then you can do a little mental investigation. And I went through all of these myself, friends. One, do you regularly interact with people who were in your household when you were growing up? Two, do they, not you, do they, never you, this is about them, regularly make excuses to avoid learning or doing something new and it doesn't have to be body related either three even if you really want to change something do you have reasons that you're not doing everything that it takes to make the change four even if they're valid reasons write down every reason you can't do something or didn't do something today five do you truly believe that you can make something better or are you skeptical and give your skepticism a percentage 
I think that it's probably true that I can make something better, but I'm 40% doubtful. Six, if you could only make yourself 25% better, does improving your health by 25% have value to you? Or if you could be 100% better, are you tempted to do nothing? Once you start doing this type of self-research, you might become aware of a more hidden efficacy issue. It's really fun. Okay, well, I hope you enjoy the essays today. If I had to create a theme between all of them, I think it really is this idea of how we think about things and how that affects things. I think many people are interested in that. Humans, certainly along the timeline, are interested in how we think about things. I mean, that's all of all of philosophy, how we experience being humans. And my filter, for whatever reason, is movement, is teaching, is physicality. And for those for whom that also resonates is probably why you're listening to this. And I give a lot of exercises, right? There's a lot of exercises, the calf stretch and and the doorway reach, where every time you walk through a door, you touch the top of it. So many physical exercises, but I don't know really how we separate physical exercises from mental ones, because everything is both all physical and both also non-physical and in many other realms. And I think that one of the things that I have found in my own personal evolution of being a biomechanist, in addition to being a human, is to recognize that the big separation between looking at the physical without looking at the uh, impact of the social and the cultural and the psychological effect on the physical is this that the body is this never fully integrated. And We can call ailments, you know, of the spine and the hips and the knees and the neck. Like we can think of them as these very discrete things. But I have found it most helpful for, let's just say, for feeling well in my parts to recognize that oftentimes these parts are not integrated, not just integrated into the physical. They're not integrated into the the social and the mental. And so like for those of you who've been following my work since Alignment Matters, which came out a long time ago to, you know, to essentially to Movement Matters, you can see that evolution of a full integration to go the idea of, you know, preaching the benefits of whole body, but still keeping the idea of whole body with like deep to your skin without recognizing that whole body has to do with, you know, the planet or the, the universe, really, that full integration. So obviously, I feel like my brain has expanded more <laughs> as well. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate your time. And if your curiosity is piqued by these essays, you can find Alignment Matters on sale at Nutritious Movement through September 3rd using code SUMMERBOOKLOVE, all one word, because alignment matters, yo. And if you really dug being read to by me, the good news is there's one more of these Alignment Matters type podcasts coming your way. And three of my other books are available in audiobook format at audible.com, Movement Matters, Whole Body Barefoot, and Move Your DNA. And I am also very excited because we are getting ready for the next series of interviews on the show. The next few months are going to be action-oriented interviews. 
That is, I want Move Your DNA to not fall under the category of entertainment, but of education, or at least edutainment. And I listen to podcasts too, and the ones that are my favorite are the ones that shape not only the way that I view things, but the way that I behave. And so I guess that kind of resonates with that last essay that I just read, which is when I'm given a bunch of action tips and I can contrast that with all of the reasons my mind automatically generates to why those action tips are impossible, that is a habit to recognize just as much as it is to always have your ankles crossed or to always have your ribs lifted, you know, or your pelvis tucked. Equally important to recognizing the habit of rib thrust is to recognize your habits of thought patterns that are keeping you from moving. That's it in a nutshell. And it's what has shaped this upcoming podcast series. Because when reading or listening to something gives me instant feedback on health, on how to self-adjust, I'm smitten. I'm smitten for the contrast because I it's like an alignment point for me. It's like, oh, look at that. I just came up with six reasons. I'm going to put air quotes around valid because I would say that all reasons are valid, but it just means that you haven't figured out a solution yet. <laughs> like, like you haven't figured out what house to be moved elsewhere to make it possible. So to be able to change a habit without changing anything else, that's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube, but you're not willing to actually twist any of the squares. So all the squares have to constantly be moving. But that's the problem, right? This is sedentarism. We're trying to solve problems in sedentarism. And the natural law of things is everything has to stay moving. So anyway, the upcoming episodes are shooting for just that. They're a bunch of practical versus a ton of theory. And theory is fun and I love it, but it can often get in the way of action. And I've put out a ton of theory. So join me, won't you, in a little less talk and a lot more action. Okay, if you enjoyed listening to Move Your DNA, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps other listeners decide whether they should press play on this podcast. Choose yes. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. 